Welcome to Everyday Wellness Podcast. I'm your host, nurse practitioner, Cynthia Thurlow. This podcast is designed to educate, empower, and inspire you to achieve your health and wellness goals. My goal and intent is to provide you with the best content and conversations from leaders in the health and wellness industry each week and impact over a million lives. Today, I had the honor of connecting with Dr. Mark Kukazella, who is a professor from West Virginia University School of Medicine and a retired Air Force Reserve Lieutenant Colonel. He practices family medicine, and he's an advocate for evidence-based policy and education. I had the honor of meeting him earlier this summer. We both spoke at an event. He has a really interesting perspective about the paradigm shifts to low carb, the impact on metabolic health, the need for guideline centrals for low-carb diets for patients, the impediments to changing the narrative within the traditional allopathic medical model, low-carb on a budget, as well as food insecurity. I had a really amazing conversation with Dr. Kugazella. I know you will find it incredibly beneficial, and I look forward to reconnecting with him in 2023 for a second podcast. Welcome, Dr. Kukazella. It's so nice to reconnect with you. Oh, it's uh, great to be here, Cynthia. A privilege and it was awesome to meet you a couple months ago in the great state of Virginia. <laughs> yes. Land, but not too far from me. I'm in the other Virginia. The, the West yes. Virginia. Yes. No, it's wonderful. And so I think let's start the conversation. You have such an interesting background. You have a military background and you were a serious runner. You were very humble. When I met you, you were talking about your humble running practice it's a serious running practice over a hundred marathons and ultra marathons. That is next level dedication. (laughs) So let's start there. Well, maybe that was my path into becoming a a healthcare practitioner. (laughs) So I think anyone who is a competitive athlete, you know, a cross country at university of Virginia, right up the road from you. um, in a a sad week this week at UVA, you know, with a lot of the, the violence now that has, infested college campuses. But um, yes, I went there for college. And I think every anyone who did a collegiate sport, basically, you know, you you do whatever you're doing until you break and you try to fix it and you repeat. But that was kind of the way it was. You know, that was the culture. And, you know, myself and all my teammates, you know, you're always hurt and trying to figure out how to get out of that. And we had like a mad scientist doctor who was this uh, really innovative orthopedist. His name was Daniel Coland. And uh, he had a practice and he treated all the national level runners in, in America at the time. And, uh, you know, so he would you'd go into his office and he'd spend like an hour with you, Cynthia. Like, well, that's weird. Most people get 10 minutes. <laughs> Five minutes if you're lucky. Inject some cortisone into your joints or something. But no, he would, you know, he was like the guy on Back to the Future. You know, he'd look at you and watch you run on a treadmill and you know, he'd put, make these little shoe inserts in his waffle iron. And, and he had this big pool in his, kind of like a big hot tub in his office. And he'd have runners in there with like a tether running. And, and you know, I asked him why he did that. And he's like, well, that's what they do with horses, right? So <laughs> when you're hurt, you know, run in the water, right? There's no impact. And, I, you know, I, I was really fascinated because it was the first time in my life, like I felt like someone kind of connected with me and cared about me. Like this guy really cares about you know, about, you know, follow up, he'd call you, how you doing as, you know, I was like, wow, that's, you know, I want to do that, right. And in some capacity, and, you know, I followed him around a little bit of my fourth year college. And, you know, he wrote me a a letter, you know, for medical school, and maybe, maybe that was my, they helped me, but right, it's hard to get into medical school. And I wasn't the best of students, I did pretty well, but, you know, you know, everybody does, but somehow I got into UVA medical school, with thoughts of being an orthopedist, because that was kind of all I knew as an athlete was being broken and getting fixed. But then I was really fascinated just by all aspects of medicine and physiology and health. And I had a military scholarship and um, family medicine, which is kind of general medicine, primary care, which had a branch called flight medicine, which was operational medicine, was a specific field in the Air Force. And I rotated in that field and I liked it. I was like, this is fun. Like, you know, the, the orthopedic side was much more fixing things that were broken, but that side of medicine was much more like you do a lot of stuff and you're trying to keep people well. And it was a lot of orthopedics, but not the operations when people are broken. It was a lot of the non-operative sports injuries. And and that was kind of the start of my career, you know, did active duty for about 10 years 
and then separated from active duty, stayed reserve for 29 total years of service, but then went to University of Colorado on faculty and ended up out here to be closer to my family. And it's been a good move. I live in a beautiful little town called Shepherdstown, West Virginia. But that's the short story of how I became a doc and, you know, metabolic health. You know, I started working a lot with obesity in the military and discovered, you know, just by listening to troops, you know, who are able to lose weight and keep it off. You know, you go to bases and you're doing these presentations. You'd ask a question, Cynthia, to the audience, who in the audience, and these are usually people being remediated for not passing their fitness test. So they don't want to be there. You know, they're <laughs> this guy who's going to yell at us to run more, you know, this doctor runner guy, right? They don't really want to be there, but they're kind of mandated. They're marginal on their test. And there'd always be one person who'd raise their hand at one of these base gym seminars, you know, who lost 50 pounds and kept it off. And what, what, what did you do? You know, Aaron Smith and It'd always be some version of the same. It was like, got rid of all the sugar, you know, did paleo. And, you know, 10, 15 years ago, paleo was not the aisle in Whole Foods of processed paleo food. It was eat plants and animals, like something you'd gather or kill, right? That was like the original, or they, you know, they would even occasionally tell me you did cardiology for so many years. And, you know, 15 years ago to tell a doctor, you know, I did, you know, <laughs> Atkins, you know, it would, they'd be afraid I was going to yell, but they would actually say, yeah, I did this thing called Atkins. You know, I know you're going to tell me I'm going to get a heart attack. I'm like, no, 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 it's cool. I, you know, but that kind of led down rabbit hole of diabetes and diabetes. Most of my practice now is is diabetes reversal, you know, trying to take people off medications. It's a, you know, using methods similar to yours, you know, understanding the food and, you know, timing of food, but there's so many levers there. And that brings me joy as a clinician because people come back and they're better. It's like, wow, the medical students, you know, I have one with me today, you know, and he's like, that was fun, right? <laughs> like people get better, you know, like that doesn't happen much. You know, they come in and they're sicker, more meds. But um, no, people can get better. I think that's, it's something as someone who worked in cardiology and, and prior to that, I was in ER medicine. We used to count the amount of medications that patients were taking. And we had a few that were in the 40 to 50 range medications, not supplements. And I think in traditional allopathic medicine, you know, we're not taught much about nutrition and lifestyle medicine. We're really focused on symptom management with medications and there's no criticism from my end, you know, in terms of, you know, the many very talented clinicians I've worked with over the years, but those of us that are putting together the pieces about how critically important what we eat, how we sleep, how we manage our stress, do we exercise, that is so impactful. And the work that you're doing, if you're getting people off of medications, that should be applauded. That should be the standard of care as opposed to you know, my patients in cardiology that, you know, every year we were adding more medications, more antihypertensives, more diabetes medications, more cholesterol lowering medications, and oftentimes shaming them and saying, you know, you need to eat less and exercise more. And, and you and I both know that doesn't work, doesn't work. Uh, you know, or, or count your calories till the end of time. It doesn't take into account the hormonal dysregulation. And so, you know, over your 20 plus years as a clinician, what are some of the significant changes that you've seen? I know that you're doing profound and impactful work, but what are some of the changes you've seen in your patient population overall over the last 20 years? What are some of the changes? I mean, I think from my perspective, a lot of what I saw shifting was, you know, people were, as you said, 15 years ago, paleo was nutrient dense whole food. And now you've got keto, paleo, junk food. You've got plenty of vegan junk food, let's be honest, because we're, we're so focused on these hyper-processed, hyper-palatable foods. Heck yeah. Yeah. I mean, gosh, where has it gone? You know, I, I graduated med school in 92. So it's been 30 years of practice. And, you know, I honestly believe like anyone did, if you were overweight, you know, that was, you know, probably in some way on you. And if this wasn't, you know, a metabolic hormonal dysregulation, you know, we had this calorie balance equation and, you know, and we would all profess to that and tell people that, but nobody ever got better, you know, and for me, maybe it worked because I was a runner, like I could probably eat whatever I, I wanted to eat, but I, I was highly active, but I ended up also about 11 or 12 years ago, developing a condition called maturity onset diabetes of youth. So that was kind of my personal wake up call when I'm getting my military physical and my, you know, I look like this, you know, I'm running, but I'm waking up at like two in the morning, every morning needing to eat you know, my glucose was plummeting, but I didn't know it. I'd had, I had an intact second phase insulin response, but not making what's called a first phase insulin response. So I'd 
eat something carby and my sugar would spike like really high 250 range. But then like two hours later, I would crash, you know, like wake up in the middle of the night, like needing to eat. But I, you know, it went on for about maybe a year, maybe even two years. But I thought that was just the way it was. Well, I guess I'm running a lot. And I need to keep eating like this. And I was actually losing weight, you know, and eating probably like eight to 10,000 calories a day, you know, insane amounts of food. And, um, but yeah, I, I just happened. Dudes don't go to doctors, right? So, I mean, they, they come in cardiology. The only time they showed up is when they're having an event, right? They don't come in for prevention. But if you're in the service, you know, every so many years, you got to line up for your lab tests, you know, and you're just mandated. And that's how things get identified. So I had a diabetes level blood sugar. And they put me, uh, I was at Wright Pat, and they gave me an early gen, what's called a CGM, a continuous glucose monitor. You know, it wasn't something you could see from your phone like I have now. It was, you can download it later, but so I wore that for three days and I knew nothing about blood sugars or C-peptides or insulin or <laughs> insulin resistance at the time. And, and the, they showed me what was happening to my glucose and I'm like, holy cow. But I, fortunately, at the time, because of the work with obesity I was doing for the Air Force, I wasn't, I'd read all of Gary Taubes and Eric Westman. So like I knew that eating a well-formulated low-carbohydrate diet was not going to give me a heart attack. So like immediately switched the food pyramid upside down overnight. Right? So not many patients are kind of willing to do that. But like if your career is on the line, you're going to do it. And like mine was, because if you're diagnosed with full diabetes or on medications, you're medically discharged. So you're like, okay, I know the only way to regulate blood sugar without medication is to not eat sugar. So, But I think every human should understand that it's a human right for us as clinicians to give people choices. You know, the more medic, like you mentioned, Cynthia, they're on every time they come in, they're on another med for their blood pressure, for their lipids, you know, another anticoagulant. The more meds someone is on to manage a condition, are they getting healthier or are they getting sicker? They're getting yeah. sicker. Yeah. And they actually die sooner. The data on at least glucose lowering meds, the more glucose lowering meds you're on, the sooner you will die, no matter what your sugar is, because your diabetes is getting worse. But we published a paper a year ago with authors from four continents on medication reduction in type 2 diabetes. And, you know, if you go into the literature, you know, as a med student, a resident, you know, tending, you know, we're hammered every day with industry articles on how to prescribe more, right? Advertising direct to consumers. But medical students have never had a talk or never read a single paper on how to de-prescribe, which really should, we should, I mean, if there's an art and a science to that, right? Just like we all learn clinical experience about how to prescribe beta blockers, you know, for heart failure and you just make mistakes, but they have to understand some of the basic pharmacology principles, but then they have to see patients and start trying it and, you know, have immediate contact with patients if you're de-prescribing, right? You can't say, come back in three months, stop all your meds, you know, no, not at all. Like you're going to have monitoring, you know, that they do at home and they communicate with you, glucose, blood pressure. I mean, that should you know, it's 2022, you know, from we have the technology to give better care and it's not time consuming. There's quick touches, you know, to be able to, okay, keep lowering your insulin, right? You can stop your insulin now. And then, well, then they're like, then they're good, right? Then it's actually pretty easy when they're not on insulin, they don't get hypoglycemia, not at risk. But well, we can I mean, share that paper in the show notes for clinicians, you know, it's, it's just kind of algorithms of how to take meds away, just like we would learn how to put them on, right? First line, second line, we, you know, we get hammered with that stuff every year, some new, you know, society guideline, you know, with this fancy algorithm, ours is actually pretty simple. Do you find yourself struggling to get a good night's sleep? If so, you may be dealing with a hidden mineral deficiency. It is not at all uncommon in perimenopause and menopause to deal with sleep challenges. And we know that one of many contributory reasons for poor sleep can be a reduction in specific minerals that help regulate sleep quality, including magnesium, which is involved in GABA, which is our body's main calming neurotransmitter. We also know that we need potassium to create melatonin. And this is a hormone that is a master antioxidant, but is also utilized to help induce sleep We also think about things like zinc, which can balance excitatory neurotransmitters like glutamate. And if it's overactive, meaning if your glutamate levels are too high, it can prevent your brain from becoming more relaxed and inducing sleep. 
And lastly, selenium increases both our deep sleep and sleep duration. All these minerals matter a lot for sleep and any imbalances or deficits can have a major impact on the quality of sleep you get each night. And that's why I love Beam Minerals. They offer a full spectrum mineral supplement that gives you every essential mineral your body needs in the right doses, all in a highly absorbable liquid form. All you do is take a shot of bean minerals about an hour before bed. Don't worry, it tastes like water. And you'll replenish all of your body's minerals in about 30 seconds and give your brain what it needs for deep restorative sleep. I've been using this product over the last several months. I've really been impressed with the improvement in my sleep metrics, which I like to share on social media with my followers. And if you want a simple way to improve your sleep, head over to www.beaminerals.com and use code Cynthia for 20% off your first order. That's www.beaminerals.com and use code Cynthia for 20% off your first order. Today's podcast is sponsored by NutriSense. It combines cutting edge technology and human expertise so you can see how your body responds to different types of nutrition, stress, exercise, sleep, and where you are in your menstrual cycle in real time. And by pairing a continuous glucose monitor with their app and expert nutritional guidance, NutriSense can help you reach your health goals. And the best part is it's not just a program where they send you the CGM and you have to figure it out on your own. Each subscription plan includes one month of free expert nutritionist support. Your nutritionist will work with you one-on-one interpreting your data and providing customized advice to help you reach your health goals. The last time I had my CGM on, my registered dietitian and I troubleshooted over some specific concerns that I had. And whether you're aiming to lose weight, stabilize your energy, or just feel better overall, NutriSense offers the guidance and support you need. And lasting sustainable change takes time and can be achieved through a longer term subscription. That's why I encourage my patients and clients to consider three, six, or 12-month subscriptions where it's actually less expensive and allows you to not only achieve your goals, but also to ensure that you stick to your healthy lifestyle for the long term. As I've mentioned before, I have found the CGMs I've used through NutriSense to be incredibly insightful, specifically to carbohydrate tolerance. I would not have known that plantains spiked my blood sugar without this information. It's also been hugely helpful for tailoring to workouts and sleep quality. And so for me, even though I am metabolically healthy, I find the insights to be particularly helpful to tailor my lifestyle changes to my blood sugar. Visit NutriSense.io slash EWP and use the code EWP for $30 off plus one month of free nutritionist support. Be sure to let them know you're a listener of the Everyday Wellness Podcast when they ask you how you heard about them. This is one of my favorite ways to take care of my health and one of my top recommendations for all of my patients and clients. Now, I actually read the Guideline Central last night, and it is really well put together. And I think for anyone that's listening, even when I talk about just the strategy of intermittent fasting, I tell people, if you're on blood pressure meds or cholesterol meds or diabetes medication, you have to have a touch point with your healthcare practitioner because very likely you'll need to make adjustments. And I don't want it to turn into, you know, you lose 10 pounds and then you're passing out in a store or you're you're becoming acutely hypoglycemic. And so just touching back on Modi, because I think there'll be a lot of questions about what is Modi and it's a mutation in a gene. And so it's something that's inherited. Did a member of your family or was there anyone that you were aware of in your family we, that we have suffered? type one in my family, you know, and it's kind of sporadic, but essentially what that, so there's 95, maybe 98% of diabetes in America is insulin resistance hyperinsulinemia, meaning you're making too much insulin to overcome the resistance. And when you can't make enough insulin to overcome the resistance, you have high sugar and they say you have diabetes, but essentially you're making too much insulin until you can't make enough to keep up. Then you have the other side of the coin where you don't make enough insulin. And technically that's a type one variety. So, so the Modi maturity onset diabetes of youth or LADA late onset diabetes of adulthood. So these, these are late onset conditions where you don't make enough insulin. So I think that's the simplest way for someone listening. You know, so my body's like massively insulin sensitive. So this little squirt of insulin 
that I make for my physiology keeps me okay. But for someone who's insulin resistant, it wouldn't touch it. They would be on medications. So like you keep your body highly insulin sensitive and you actually don't need a lot of insulin. And we see this in type ones. I have a lot of type one patients, the ones who are super fit exercise, they don't need a lot of, they don't need to inject a lot of insulin, very low amounts and they're very stable. And the exercise actually is this backdoor method of glucose disposal. So like when they're exercising, if they're on a pump, they're going to shut their pump off because they're, and they could even be taking carbohydrates in while they're exercising, you know, because they're disposing of that glucose, you know, through the exercise mechanism, you can upregulate your glucose disposal up to about 50 times by, that's a magic thing for anyone who's a type two diabetes patient. You have high sugar here, take some insulin, stuff it into the cells, or you can go for a walk and lower. And we did a published, we did a trial published about a year and a half ago on using continuous glucose monitors and helping new diabetes patients just understand their diabetes by food and exercise. We didn't give them a lot of coaching. We just let them kind of log and immediately they saw, well, the carbohydrates increase my sugar. I'll stop that. And the exercise is really good. And two thirds of those patients they were new diabetes patients, never been on meds. Two thirds of them in four months met the criteria for not having diabetes anymore. Now, That's like, incredible. Pause, you're like, wait a minute. Two thirds of patients over four months, not intensive coaching, just putting a little monitor on their arm, made their diabetes go away. Now, will they sustain that the rest of their life? I believe they will if they keep eating that way, <laughs> but it's not a diet, right? That's their physiology. So for them, if they had to be at 30 to 50 grams of carbs and walk an hour a day and their sugars were beautifully good and majority of them lost significant weight too. A1C reduction was like 1.8 average, you know, no medicine, right? This is, they felt better. They got That's incredible. What do you think are some of the biggest impediments to acceptance of frontlining lifestyle for treatment and addressing of metabolic disorders like type two diabetes, which is a lifestyle mediated disorder? Yeah, yeah, it's a nutritional syndrome of of carbohydrate intolerance. It's not a. It can be without. It can be reversed. I'm in medicine. You're, you know, you're in medicine. So our medical industry has no incentive to make people well. Right? It's pharma procedures, hospitals. You know, they give us RVUs. You know, how much am I billing per patient? You know, incentives based. So there's no. If you have a for-profit healthcare system, there's no incentive to make people not customers anymore. And I don't think there's any ill will in that. It's just the way it is in the system we've created. You know, I don't think doctors want to make people sicker, but we're not taught or trained in this. And it's highly disruptive to the status quo. Like what I do here is not universally accepted. It's accepted highly in my peers who understand it, who send me patients. But then you have others who think, you know, if I if you eat meat, you're going to get a heart attack, which we know from the literature is absolutely not true. But people have entrenched belief systems that we've carried with us from our training, maybe our culture, thought leaders or opinion leaders. So I think where the experts disagree, Cynthia, the ignorant are free to choose, right? So <laughs> we need to give patients opportunity. Well, see how, let's get you off of sugar. You have a problem with sugar. Let's just do it for two weeks. You tell me how you feel, right? Well, I'm worried about, well, we'll check your cholesterol. You know, we'll check all these things. Everyone's worried about these things, right? We'll check them. Oh, wow, they're better. Everything about this is better, including your labs, right? So there's nothing not, and you feel good. But so I think give people permission to do something and take ownership and let the numbers, their numbers, they will, you know, I think your cholesterol is going to go up or something. Well, let's see. And what does that matter for you, right? If your HDL goes up and everything else is fine. So I think we just need, but it takes time. You know, I think we don't get enough time with people. You know, you're trying to do this 20 to 30 minute visits and electronic health records that are very burdensome. But the, the system we work in is very intervention, you know, pharmaceutical driven, not lifestyle driven. And we use, you know, I, I have tons of patients on medicine, so I'm not anyone out. I'm not like a medicine denier or cholesterol. I have tons of patients on lipid lowering, you know, the ones who need it, blood pressure lowering, you know, need. So, yeah, no, we need to use every tool in the toolkit. And, uh, but lifestyle for lifestyle-driven disease, which is diabetes, high blood pressure, cardiovascular disease, you name osteoarthritis, you name the organ system. So the primary treatment should be lifestyle and then use. But you mentioned what, what's another barrier to, I think, just the way people are and, and everyone's busy and stressed. And 
So, so take a study like we did where we put a glucose monitor on new diabetes patients. So I think Pete, what I've just kind of learned, I think people fall into thirds when they walk into the clinic. So there's, okay, they've got diabetes or they smoke and, and you like suggest, well, maybe we can work on this, but they, you know, just went through a divorce, their kid overdosed, they lost their job from COVID, you know, they're filing for bankruptcy, you know, they're living off food stamps, their mother just moved into their house. Their life is a mess. They're not ready yet to start a low carb diet. Those folks would not enroll in the clinical trial, right? They're just, and it's fine. I come back when, you know, someone doesn't want to quit smoking today. We don't bully them or shame them or say it's their fault. It's like, we're here for you when you're ready. We understand all of this. I will help you. Compassion, right? I will do everything I can to help you. Come back when you're ready. And we have people who like two years later, they'll show up in clinic. You know, I saw you in the cardiac lab two years ago. I do all the cardiac testing in my hospital. We had a conversation and I'm ready to, and it's kind of wild, like I, familiar. And they're like, yeah, you met me two years ago. And that's their joyful visits. And then you have a third that are like all in right away, right? They're maybe someone like me. They have skin in the game, right? They're something is real. And they're like, oh gosh, I love meat, eggs, and non-starchy vegetables. I could eat this stuff the rest of my life. I'm not, I don't have a relationship problem with food. They never look back. And I bring those patients in to talk to medical students <laughs> because then we talk about like what's different from them than someone else, right? They just did it, right? It's a couple weeks struggle, but they read, they understood the basic science and they were willing to go all in. The people that will go all in will make, you know, you either do it or you don't. Like they'll get immediately good response. They'll feel great. They'll start losing weight. Their sugars are perfect. Good. They, they get it. They'll never look back. And then the third struggle, right? They'll have a good week. And I'm sure many of your colleagues and clients and patients, right? Then it's like, oh, holidays, right? This is Thanksgiving week. Oh, man, landmine, landmine, landmine. You know, they'll have a lapse, a full relapse. <laughs> and they'll constantly struggle until they really address that relationship with food. And that's okay. They're working it. And they're the ones I think really need the support. And we had like in our trials, so we had some of those, like they made some benefit, but they were the ones when we did the post interviews, these are the ones I had, they would have great weeks and then they would struggle. So they were constantly waffling, but then the ones who did it crushed it, right? Because <laughs> they were like, you know, dropped A1Cs three to four and lost pounds in four months, like crazy, right? They're the ones who are, so I think everyone, we need to support all people, but I think the ones that need the most intervention and time intensity is that group in the middle that need coaching and, you know, that are vulnerable. Well, and I think it makes it's, sense. <laughs> yeah, know? no, it does. And I, I think it really speaks to the type of compassionate care you have and relationships you have with your patients, recognizing who's ready to make changes, the people that are not ready and the ones that are going to require significant support. And, and I agree with you that, you know, the category of people that have a healthy relationship with food, it's easy for them. Food is fuel. And that's the mindset. And then the people that I see struggle, um, and I see all women, the ones that struggle the most are the ones that have these, and I don't want to say disordered relationships, but they have complicated relationships with food. You know, sometimes they have a really good week, depending on where they are in their cycle, and they don't have these profound cravings. And then they get a week before their menstrual cycle and everything falls apart. You know, their carb cravings go through the roof. They're less insulin sensitive. They're not sleeping. They're more anxious, more depressed. And so in a lot of different ways, it's, you know, clinicians like we are that are, you know, kind of leaning into what types of support and information our patients need. And I would agree with you from Halloween to New Year's Eve or New Year's Day, I would argue that is a very challenging time for most people because, you know, what I typically recommend and teach is, you know, enjoy yourself on the holidays and then get back on track. But a lot of people feel like, you know, one day of having dessert or eating too much out, consuming too much alcohol or having too much chips or whatever it is that they're consuming all of a sudden becomes a landslide. And before they know it, they've gained five or 10 pounds and they're discouraged. Then, you know, really, you know, tapping into their mindset and trying to get a sense for how do we kind of reel things back in. And I think, you know, also being transparent and honest about your experiences, your experiences working with other patients being very transparent and also recognizing that the degree of support for each one of those groups of people is very different. And, you know, additional resources, I, I've become a huge fan of health coaches because more often than not, they can be in between provider visits. They can be the person to be a lifeline or to be able to provide ancillary support and report back to us. And 
And I do think that that, you know, it's been my experience that health coaches in many ways can, you know, step in to be that, that teacher, that coach in the interim in between office visits. Oh yeah. hundred percent. I wish in like the civilian medical sector here, you know, insurance covered and we could train health coaches correctly. You know, I mean, a coach is a coach, but you want to make sure that they're trained just like any clinician, you know, like I vet people pretty close before I would let them give advice to people because if patients, you know, non-patients, right, just uh, clients or, you know, want to get coaching, if they're getting, you know, cognitive dissonance, one person saying, you know, red meat's going to kill you, you know, eat all these grains and the other one saying, well, you have diabetes, you know, no grains. And that, yeah. So, so I think we all have to kind of huddle together and try to do the right thing for patients. But yeah, little brief indulgences, maybe you'd call that. I mean, I think every human should understand it's okay to have a planned brief indulgence and but plan that. Okay, when I have pumpkin pie on Thursday, but then they know that's not going to, you know, going to set them up into a, a relapse. But everyone kind of knows if they're a moderator or an abstainer. You know, there's some people that that one cigarette, right? boom, they're back in it. An alcoholic, right? It'd be foolish for us to tell an alcoholic, well, Saturday's a cheat day, have a brief indulgence. So I think we have to be careful. Some people can do that and not go off the rails, but if they do that and keep going off the rails, we have to tell them, no, you must abstain, right? You have to treat it in the addiction model. And, you know, fortunately, Cynthia, we do have, I mean, it's real. So many patients have what you described, you know, these carb cravings, and it's a craving as much as any other substance. And we have medications now that can help. You know, so I think we, as a field, we are treating, you know, obesity, food addiction, you know, diet as a, you know, this is a medical condition, right? And we have to treat the brain too. And yeah, so find a clinician who can help you with some of that, because maybe there are times where some medications can help with those cravings. No, and I think it's interesting that, you know, I always say, if you can moderate, that's one thing. If you can't moderate, you eliminate. And so- Unfortunately, the kind of prevailing dogma on social media or, you know, on the web is, oh, just moderate. No, no, not everyone can moderate. I jokingly say, I don't eat gluten-free cookies or cake or any of those things because one cookie becomes five, you know, a piece of pie becomes two or three. And so for me, I can moderate dark chocolate, really high quality dark chocolate. I can't moderate things with flour in them. And I suspect most people, it's that sugar rush. You just don't, you know, it's the way that your body is metabolizing that food that has a large net impact on why it becomes so desirous, why, you know, you get that dopamine hit in your brain and you want more and more and more. Yeah, and I think our friend Vinny Tortorich, who was also there, you know, I think he's right, right? There's no sugar, no grains. I mean, I haven't touched grains in 12 years, you know, and I'm fine, but I do love dark chocolate. You know, it's so rich that you really can't overeat like like you get one of those bars that's in five cubes, Mm -hmm. you know, eat one cube and that's you can't. But if I had a 70 percent dark chocolate, I would eat all five, you know, it's just more sugar than an 85 percent. I would eat all five blocks and lick the wrapper. (laughs) But there's a threshold of like it's bitter. Right. But it's good. But you just can't. Your brain will not let you. I mean, anyone listening, go try to binge 90 percent dark chocolate. Just (laughs) No. (laughs) Yeah. You just can't. I mean, just like binging hard boiled eggs, right? Like something in your brain will tell you like, no, I can't like, no, (laughs) it doesn't, it's not appealing. But yeah, I mean, a lot of these, you know, keto products, I think people, you know, kind of transfer that sugar addiction into, you know, processed fat addiction, right? These high fat processed keto bombs, you know, that are highly palatable, loaded with sugar alcohols. I mean, you can eat thousands of calories of that, you know, but it's keto, but people, I mean, you talked about that, just no, that's not, that's magical thinking, right? Because you can, they're highly palatable, any food like that, that lights your brain up, if you're someone that cannot be a moderator, right? You know that you can't, like, don't let anyone convince you, oh, just go try this stuff, it's fine. And usually that's someone who's not insulin resistant. So the people giving this advice, you know, online or, you know, 25 year old, you know, fitness instructors, right? They, well, I can eat this. Like, no, that's fine, right? For you, but don't go be telling these people, you know, postmenopausal females with diabetes in my clinic. Like, do not, like, do not follow those people on social media. Their metabolism is not like yours. Yeah, no, or the does it fit your macros? You know, that's always the one that that I find not triggering personally, but it bothers me because people then think, oh, I can, you know, I, I it's a higher carb day, so I can have the donuts. No, you can't have the donuts. You know, it's that's you know, do your fit does it fit your 
Yeah. It's like, does it fit your macros probably works for a 25 year old or maybe a 30 year old, but does not work for middle-aged individuals. And and it's because there's so much hormonal changes that are going on in the body. We've got less, you know, muscle mass, more adipose tissue. And there's so many different things that contribute to why we are more prone to metabolic disease as we get older. And you now, one thing that to try it, right, Cynthia, and if it doesn't work, okay, you tried it, it doesn't work. Don't keep trying it. But I'm not, so I'm sorry, you were, you were saying something there, interrupted. No, 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 no. I was thinking about the fact that uh, it's probably the a study that you are familiarized with talking about non-nutritive sweeteners that came out recently looking at saccharin and aspartame and stevia and a few other things. And was it any surprise what the results were? And I'm thinking about a keto company that will will remain unnamed. They're very nice individuals, but their products have a lot of sucralose in them and trying to explain to people that, you know, sugar by any other name is really sugar. And if you look at the research on what happens, I think these were mouse models um, looking at their glucose tolerance and looking at the changes in the gut microbiome, just with the utilization of these products in a 30 day span of time. And and so I keep reminding people that I know well-meaning individuals are in the business to sell products that are cleaner than their conventional counterparts, but we have to get real about our relationship with sugars as one example. And the irony is I'm listening to Vinny's book right now, and there's a whole chapter talking about sugar. And to your point that it's really examining our relationship with sugar, our brains and our palates really crave sugar. And so when we have that 90% dark chocolate and the polyphenol count is higher, so those bitter compounds are actually beneficial to us. But what ends up happening is you take something that's inherently fairly healthy and you add in sugar and you add in milk fat and all these other things, and then it becomes an intoxicating candy bar that's really hard to resist, even for people that are metabolically healthy. No, no, 100% there. And yeah, the sugar alcohols too, you know, for anyone who thinks they can just use this stuff ad libitum, like it gives people such horrible cramping. And ultimately there, there's this toxicity where people just like, yeah, it does not treat your gut well. But maybe as a wean, you know, when someone's coming off, you know, three big old Mountain Dews a day and and now we're just trying to wean them. So some people are like the all in. I'm just like, they tend to be like military type people. Right? They're all in right off. But other folks, you know, they want a gentle, you know, more gentle entry. So I think there is a role for these products, but ultimately the goal, just like vaping, right? You get smoking three packs a day and now you're going to transition to vaping, but we certainly don't want you to be vaping your whole life. But if it's helping you e-cigarette or something, I don't want to support those industries, obviously, but if your goal is in three months, you're going to be off. Everyone has a different plan and we as clinicians, coaches need to work with them, but make sure it's realistic, you know, and if they get off the rail, help them get back on. And no, and it's so important. I've never seen anyone never get off the rail. Like, find me that perfect person, and there's someone on Pinterest or something in there. <laughs> these people are not real. Like, yeah. Listening and you're following these people. They're not real. Yeah. You know, one of the things that you talk quite a bit about is how to do low carb on a budget, which I think is really important. I know for a lot of individuals going from a hyper palatable diet to a less processed one can be overwhelming because it is more expensive to buy meat. It is more expensive to buy just regular fruits and vegetables as opposed to their processed counterparts. Yeah, we actually published a little book with a grant called, we can share it because it's open access. It's called Low Carb on Any Budget. I'll send you the link and you can download the book. I work in rural West Virginia, you know, so most people don't have access to, you know, garden fresh vegetables 365 days a year, right? That it doesn't exist. So you, I mean, I mean, no kidding. If you look at my whole state, you know, 50% of the state does most of their grocery shopping at dollar stores. There's no grocery stores in these towns. So you should be able to go into a dollar store and make better decisions. You know, you can buy frozen broccoli, you can get canned tuna, you can get ground beef, you can get eggs, you can get blocks of cheese. I mean, you can go into a dollar store in rural West Virginia and eat. It's not your perfect, you know, grass-fed, organic farm, farmer market, you know, the, but it's good, right? Like compared to getting the most highest purchased item with SNAP, which is food stamps, is soda, right? So we're using all these government dollars, you know, which are supposedly to address food insecurity, which is your health is impacted by your ability to to purchase food. And people are buying soda and chips and, you know, yeah, I mean, it shouldn't happen, but, you know, there's too many special interests involved in policy. 
you know, you and I will not change those laws probably in our lifetime. So we can help train, teach patients. Look, you can, because everyone has, oh, it's expensive. You're like, no, it's really not. Like, you know, I, I mean, I have a decent job, but I don't go, I purchase a half a pig and half a cow every winter and stick it in the freezer, you know, and gradually eat off of that. And, you know, in the wintertime, I'm not, you know, I'm not getting as many fresh vegetables because they're shipped up from Peru or something and they're pretty tasteless. So I'll get frozen broccoli, frozen Brussels sprouts, olive oil and salt, you know, it's delicious, right? And then when summer comes around and got a lot of amazing local stuff, the Right now, the amazing, uh, like the kale and the chard is like magical right now. Like at least where I live, these fall vegetables and oh my gosh, yeah. So you still can get that stuff and it's not expensive. We developed a program here in year seven um, with some grant funding to double SNAP at local farmer markets. So you can take your EBT card, you know, which is your benefits card to a farmer market and swipe $20, for example, and they'll give you $40 of, of market bucks which can be used on not just the vegetables, but you can go buy eggs, you can go buy sausage, you know, you can go buy cheese, you can buy like any local farm product. And that's like, but a small fraction of our people, you know, on SNAP and EBT are going to farmer markets. But the ones who actually are, are doing this, they keep coming back. They're like, wait, are you serious? I can double this? And we even triple it with it. There's another program in this state called SNAP Stretch. So if you have children, that $1 on your EBT card becomes $3. They're like, no way. It's like, yeah, way. So oh, that's yeah, even though the vegetables are a little more expensive, you know, at a, you know, face value, but when you've tripled your dollars and then kids learn to like vegetables, they're like, wow, this is actually like pretty tasty. Like an apple from one of those orchards. I mean, they had, yeah, it's like, oh my gosh, they, they bite into one of these local apples and they're like, wait, that's good. <laughs> yeah. This is like really good. But so support programs like that in your community, you know, I think you have to be innovative and work within the barriers that you got, you know, between government policy and food access. Do you have a grocery store? I shop at Aldi like 100 percent is, you know, when I need to shop because there's only like 1500 items in an Aldi. So you don't get overwhelmed. Like you walk into like one of these big stores, I, I get like a panic attack. I, I just want to get some bacon, you know, and they're trying to find it. And I'm just like, get me out of here. But all these, you know, you can search and, you know, it's go around the perimeter in 10 minutes, you're out of there and even get that 85% dark chocolate. At some point, we've all been sold a big fat lie. It's called the protein misconception. So starting in the 1980s, we all believed that more protein equated to more muscle growth. And I'm here to tell you it's a big misconception. This has a great deal to do that our body can only absorb protein that's broken down into smaller building blocks called amino acids. It doesn't matter if you're consuming 30 grams of protein or 300 grams of protein. If you don't have a sufficient supply of enzymes to digest the protein, your muscles will ultimately be unable to use these as vital building blocks. That's why it's crucial you take a high-quality digestive enzyme. The one I trust and use myself is called Masszymes by Bioptimizers. Masszymes is a full-spectrum enzyme formula with more protease than any other commercially available product. With five different forms of protease. Plus, it contains all the other key enzymes you need for optimal digestion. If you're experiencing bloating, gas, or digestive distress, a contributing factor can be that your body is no longer producing as much digestive enzymes. And you can try Masszymes today risk free. They have a 365 day full money back guarantee and is the gold standard in the industry. Go to biooptimizers.com slash Cynthia. That's B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S dot com slash Cynthia and use promo code Cynthia10 for 10% off of any order. Again, that's promo code Cynthia10 for 10% off any order. Have you guys heard about a bioactive whole food on the market with 5,000 published research studies backing it? When my oldest son needed to go on antibiotics a few months ago, I discovered Armour Colostrum and the benefits for him and his recovery from being on antibiotics have been instrumental in me now recommending this to my dairy non-sensitive patients and clients. Armour's Colostrum strengthens immunity, ignites metabolism, 
fortifies gut health, promotes hair growth and skin radiance, and powers fitness performance and recovery. My son has mentioned to me over and over again how great his gut feels, how he has improved his digestion and gut function as well. Colostrum is a rich, exclusive source of immunoglobulins or antibodies that optimize our immune defense even during cold and flu season. And we know that mucosal barriers house over 80% of our body's immune cells, including the antibodies IgG and SIG-A. And these immunoglobulins bind and intercept harmful particles like viruses, bacteria, and toxins, blocking them from crossing into the barriers into our bloodstream. And armrest colostrum contains the highest levels of SIG-A and IgG to ensure your most fortified first line of protection. It's sustainably sourced, and it's important to know that you want to mix colostrum only with cold liquids or foods or dry scoop it into your mouth. This is also great for the oral microbiome. And we've worked out a special offer for my everyday wellness community where you can receive 15% off your first order. Go to tryarmra.com slash Cynthia15 or enter Cynthia15 to get 15% off your first order. That's T-R-Y-A-R-M-R-A.com slash Cynthia15. You definitely want to check it out. Yeah. And that efficiency piece, I had to run into, I think it was Kroger and you're overwhelmed with the color because the processed food industry makes their packaging. It's really bright and colorful and enticing. Maybe the person who wants to eat it, but, you know, trying to find, as you said, trying to walk the periphery, like I I was looking for, I think garbage bags. So I had to go to that side of it, but it's like, you have to walk so far through so many other things to get to what you need. You're like, oh, I need these five other things. And then you end up having more of a grocery bill. So I think that depending on where you are in the United States or abroad, um, finding opportunities to eat locally as, as often as you can support local farmers if your budget permits, and then, you know, kind of finding a reframe for how to feed yourself and how to feed your family. Like I know with my kids, when they were younger, they're now teenagers, it was a thank you bite. Like they always had to try it. I didn't care what it was. They had to try it. And if they really liked a vegetable, we would just buy more of that vegetable. So if it was broccoli, like broccoli was always an easy choice for my kids. And maybe they didn't like sweet potatoes as much, but I was okay with that. But understanding that kids oftentimes have to try something 20 times before they like it. And their taste buds are more sensitive than ours are just like everything as we're getting older, things aren't working quite as efficiently. And so I have to remind myself, especially with my kids that if they're sitting down and having a good amount of protein and they're having some vegetables, I'm happy. I try not to think about what they're eating at school because that's a whole separate conversation. A lot of the questions that came in for you were how do I continue to support my teenager and young adult eating healthfully, because what ends up happening is if maybe in your home, you have healthy food, but then they go to a friend's house or they're at a party. I had a, my 15 year old was at a church sponsored function for the weekend. And he came home on Sunday and said, I can't eat any food. I ate nothing but junk for two days. I am so sick to my stomach. He went to bed. He was like, I can't eat that way. I eat more Oreos than I've ever eaten in my life. And he's like, I don't even want to tell you what else I ate. I was like, please don't. But I think that they're starting to make that connection. So how do we support teenagers in particular? I mean, I think as a parent, I have two, you know, one in college, a senior in high school, you can't be an authoritative parent to teenagers. I mean, I think you try to do that, that will backfire. Um, I think in your home, you model for your kids, develop a good relationship with food, right? We're going to have meat and vegetables. I mean, you, you just model like this is what we're eating. I mean, you certainly you set their palates young because kids' palates and flavors are being hijacked now you know, at age one with first foods. And Robert Lustig is the guy who's really written neuroscience on all this. And you have to create a safe food environment at home. But it's not difficult if you've never had soda in your home, not having soda in your home is not a punishment. You know, kids' brains are programmed before age seven, right? That's where the programming happens. You know, so it's kind of like, you know, video and screen time. If a kid never was exposed to screen before age seven, it's not a struggle you know, when they're 10 to extract the screen, they're fine, right? They've learned other programming mechanisms to do what they need to do to, you know, keep themselves occupied. Um, So I think it starts like with, you know, helping just serve your kids, 
you know, human food, right? Not a low carb, just real food, no sugar sweetened drinks, including the juices. Right? I mean, I don't think there's any place for that on human diet, especially for your teeth, you know, uh, and just develop a good relationship with food, you know, involve your kids to cook with you. So if you do those kind of three things, you know, model for them, you know, so you can't be, you know, binge eating Cheetos at night and expect your teenager, you know, to have kale and pork chops. Know, but I think anyone listening to your show probably has already had some good patterns, you know, and then safe food environments, you know, in the cabinet and in the fridge, you have always have real food. So if they're hungry, you know, and if you're going to get a snack, you get a piece of cheese, a piece of salami, like what do you snack on? And really, we don't need, yeah. I mean, the culture of snacks is kind of weird. Like when I grew up, there was no such thing as a snack, right? The snack industry. So you're not creating this culture. We, you know, we're going to get in the car cars are cafeterias now there's like 18 cup holders in some cars right we're not like bringing snacks to drive a half hour across town i mean that's just but people do that now right the kid can't be in the car unless the screen is on and they have it's like a movie theater right? They got two cup holders per child you know to drive you know half hour to grandma's and you're like what the hell then you got to deprogram that like no just don't go down that path and yeah, just develop a good relationship with food because kids develop bad relationships with food. And that's the worst, right? So if somehow a, a child, you're authoritative to that child and your that child starts restricting. I mean, all of us know that that's probably the worst thing that can happen to a teenager is to get a restrictive eating disorder. It'll be highly untreatable, you know, with high mortality rates. So we never want to at all do anything that could potentially send a kid down that path. There's a great book that was recommended to me by Sue Wolver, who's also in Richmond. It's called Chasing Cupcakes, which I think if you read that book, it just is like, oh, my gosh. Right. That was me. Right. Like it, not me personally. But if you read that and you're like, that was me and my mom, it takes you off the hook. You're like, OK, this is not my fault. That was my mom, you know, following me from behind because I was a little bit overweight and forcing me to run, you know, at age 12. Yeah, you're like, that happens, you know, these authoritative parents, you know, doing this to kids, it'll crush them. But well, that, and it's interesting. Book, right? Just you're like, oh, you'll, you'll catch you. will You'll think of things that you may have done or done. And you'll be like, oh, I ain't going to do that again. Because <laughs> it's, it's powerful. So yeah, I know. And it's interesting to me over my lifetime, when I did my medical training, I worked on an eating disorders unit just by pure happenstance. That's where I got placed. And we know the cure rate for anorexia, as an example, is really low, much lower than it is for bulimia or even binge eating disorders. And so I've had multiple friends throughout my lifetime and their anorexic tendencies, although they might be stable, they never go away. And so even navigating, watching friends of mine eat who've been full anorexic and now are still kind of in these restrictive patterns that mindset never changes for them. And so I agree with you wholeheartedly that if you do have a child or you yourself are struggling with this to really get the support that you need, because, you know, shaming someone that has an eating disorder is definitely not the way to go about supporting them. And it's pervasive in sports too, especially sports, you know, like distance, I was a distance runner and, uh, you know, almost hundred percent of collegiate level distance runners have some degree because they're encouraged to be and that culture is changing a little bit, but it's it's still pervasive. They're encouraged to weigh in and be ultra lean because they actually do run faster when they're lean. But the bill comes due, right? Because then ultimately they break. But their their image of their body and like who's running fast tends to be one of, okay, the one who's running fast is the one who's, you know, un, unhealthily lean. But they might actually be uber fit at that moment, but it's they're not healthy and ultimately they crash and burn. But that's a hard culture to break. Yeah, absolutely. People have started a the New York Times had an article about it last week, and people are starting to kind of come out and talk about their experience more now because it affected to talk about, you know, oh, gosh, my coach was weighing me in every week. And, you know, and it's like, whoa, <laughs> yeah, I mean, they were doing that like for us 30 years ago, but I don't think anyone understood all of this eating disorder stuff then. Now, now there's so much more knowledge about it that you know, the, the female athlete triad and they call it red S syndrome is pervasive gymnastics, any sport that would involve some degree of leanness. You know. uh, even ballet dancers, you know, ballet anyone that's dancers. in a leotard. Absolutely. Now, when you're working with your patients and you're looking at metabolic health markers, what are some of your favorite tests to use? I'm sure fasting insulin, probably a C-peptide, 
But what are some of the other testing modalities you like to look at? I know when we met over the summer, we talked a lot about the CAC. And I think this is important to kind of reinforce to our listeners, you know, things that they can be asking for that are not expensive tests, that are not particularly invasive tests that can give them good information about their metabolic health. Yeah, it depends on the question you're trying to answer. You know, so every test has its utility. There's not like any set of tests we should give to every single human, you know, fasting insulin. So we're doing a pediatric study now and children, especially their pancreas will crank insulin to store fat and carbohydrate, you know, in their path to becoming, you know, significantly obese before their sugar gets high. So that an A1C test for a child, by the time that's up, they've been hyperinsulinemic, pre-diabetic for years and probably already, you know, BMI 40 plus. So we, we've seen these fasting insulins in these children, like, like off the rails because uh, like levels you'd never see with fairly normal blood sugars. So I think if you need some kind of convincing that your body is overproducing insulin and the way to not overproduce insulin is not eat the foods that will make you need insulin, draw that test. It's like a $20 test. Um, you know, on the other, so yeah, hemoglobin A1C will tell you like who's had this condition for a while, you know, so and it's something standard medical literature we can follow. But, you know, I think really like you look at, you get a continuous glucose monitor, you know, so an A1C is one marker every three months, but it doesn't tell you anything about your glucose variability, time and range. You know, 20 years ago, like no one could get these glucose monitors. They weren't very good. They were very expensive. They were very bulky. Now the things can, you know, got one set right on my and it's, you know, $75 for a month, you know, for two of these, and you just read it on your phone, but it gives you all this data, like real-time data. So I think if you just want to see what your response is to food and mood and exercise, you don't need this forever, but just go play with one of these for a couple months. And, you know, that's it. You know, if you're on, have some kind of medical issue, I don't recommend that. Now there are people starting to use these monitors who really don't need them or who are becoming like over-interpreting. They're like uber well people, you know, who'll eat like a sweet potato and their sugar goes up just a little bit and they'll like freak out. No, that's fine, right? People are like, you know, the type A's are like, oh, you gotta be, have someone to help you. So you're not gonna put this on you and get stressed out <laughs> about something that's not meaningful, okay? So if you have medical illness, diabetes, I think it's really powerful. But if you don't, you know, I'm not recommending we have every human being on the planet put glucose monitors on. Now the, the CAC or the calcium score is a powerful test to tell you as an individual, you know, do you have any degree of cardiovascular disease that is detected? You know, it takes about probably 20 years before you would develop calcification on your arteries, you know, from the process of a little bit of damage to your endothelium, which is that little lining of the blood vessel to penetration of these small LDLs and macrophages and foam cells and soft plaque and little plaque ruptures. And then you get a little calcium cap you know, so that's a long process. But if you've got calcium on your arteries, it means you have some risk of a plaque rupture. Now, I don't want people to be terrified of that if they have calcium, but some folks just kind of want to know where they stand because they've been told, oh, everything's fine. You passed your stress test, but they've got loads of calcium. They're fully diabetic. So we want to help them because they still have high risk. And there's other people that are told, you know, you have high cholesterol, you need this med, but they're well. You know, so if you have, quote, high cholesterol, but you're otherwise perfectly well, cholesterol doesn't cause heart disease. It might be at the scene of the crime, but it's not the murderer, you know, so there's other things that have to happen. So if you're middle age, you know, I'm not saying 25 because you've got a long road to go, but you're my age, for example, you're 56. I have high cholesterol. My CAC score is still zero. So I'm okay with that. I'm not going to take a medicine to lower my cholesterol because I'm really at no risk of a piece of plaque breaking off because I don't have any plaque. But if I had a big plaque number, my dad had a heart attack at 35, right? So there's, you know, if you plug me into the calculator, I should be on all these cholesterol lowering meds. But there's a lot of things that go into heart disease. And so at least for me as an individual, my score is zero. I feel well and I don't want to take a med and I don't need to. And that's in the Heart Association's own guideline. Right? If your score is zero, there's no benefit from a statin because if your odds of a plaque rupture is near zero, the medicine can't lower that odds anymore. But if you have a high score, yeah, we need to dig into the weeds. And I order advanced lipid panels you know, for people that have really high scores that can't easily be explained. You know, I'll have people, again, these people 
these are the ones who concern you because they're the ones who are missed, right? They're athletic. They look pretty well. They're not diabetic and they have calcium scores greater than a thousand. You're like, wait a minute, where's that coming from? And then you, wow, they have high LP little a, right? And that's a genetic marker and that's not responsive to statins, right? You got to look. Yeah. So, so there's like, you have to answer that question why that person has that high score. So it's pretty, it's nuanced with some basic principles is we don't want to do harm and overtreat people, but we don't want to undertreat people that can benefit from treatment. And then, but you, you can't just guess, right? You need objective data to make that determination who does and doesn't need treatment. So I know that's kind of in two minutes, a lot of stuff and what we spend hours with, with medical students in the cardiac lab and pulling up all this stuff and having conversations with patients about what their preferences are. Do you want more testing, less testing? Well, I think it's really invaluable to hear because I don't think there's enough discussion around the CAC. I think people assume if they have a negative stress test, then their risk is relatively low. And the advanced lipid analysis, I can't tell you how many people have a a regular LDL. They get a traditional lipid panel with triglycerides, total cholesterol, HDL, LDL, and their LDL is greater than 160. And the first thing the patient tells me was, I was told I need a stat. And I said, no, you need more information. That's really what it comes down to. We need more information to make the best assessment on how to address this. If you're insulin sensitive, you're otherwise metabolically flexible, you know, get those fasting lipid, the advanced lipid analysis, we used to call it years ago, the VAP. I think it's now evolved into different names, but it's really getting more NMR information. Your profile, like yep. lab cardio IQ, Questus, depending on which lab you can get. The NMR lipid profile from LabCorp gives you what's called an insulin resistance score, which is really powerful in the women's health study, 28,000 women, 21 years, having the worst quartile of that lab test posed a 7X risk of cardiovascular disease. LDL was like 1.3. I was like, wait a minute. <laughs> Why are not we looking at this lab test, right? It's like, holy cow. And in that LDL uh, 1.3 risk, which is pretty close to one, which is like even Steven, the only part of that LDL that mattered was small LDLs and particle number, which travel with insulin resistance. The large LDL particles had no cross the line. It was one. So again, it's not, there's no good or bad cholesterol for those listening. Cholesterol is all the same. It's how it's packaged and what the condition of your arteries, genetics, like a lot of known knowns and unknowns, right? And that whole thing, right? There's a lot we don't know, right? If we knew all this cardiovascular disease would not be the leading cause of death of men and women. There's a lot we don't know. Exactly. Practicing medicine these days, right? That's what we do. We practice, but hopefully your doctors are reading and curious. I read every day. I think that's really key being a lifelong learner. It's something that my parents instilled in me, but definitely to this point, I mean, during the course of a year between papers and research and books, there's a lot that's read. And and I think for all of us, it's, you know, being curious about the fact that maybe what you learned 20 plus years ago no longer applies or things have evolved. I know that it takes medicine a long time to catch up with the research, but there are certainly people like yourself that are frontlining it, trying to change, help change policy, trying to be, you know, much more progressive in your approach and patient care. No, I think we've covered a lot of ground here, you know, spent a good hour. Absolutely. Please let listeners know how to connect with you. You are not really on social media. I was actually laughing about that, that, you know, if I try to tag people or tag you on Twitter, you're not on Twitter. It's probably a blessing because sometimes social media can be good and bad. Yeah, like honestly, but, I don't have time. Yeah. <laughs> I just, you know, like, yeah, I, I, um, I'm at my running store now. So I own a little running store, which is a little community place. We help train people and help them move better and get them walking. So like I spend a lot of time doing other things and um, but I, yeah, I have a website, Dr. Mark's desk, and there's a little contact us, but I wrote a book called run for your life. And I have a website with that called runforyourlifebook.com. I have a lot of resources on there, but that's, you can hit contact how you can reach me through there. If you live close to West Virginia, come on out. Wow. Um, yeah. So I do have a Facebook page, but I don't really, I use it more for things. I direct races to running races. So it's just having another way to kind of promote your races and events and things like that. But I think it can, it can suck the life out of you. So like, I've just 
not gone down that road. Maybe, maybe that's a good thing. You know, read a book at night, not, not go on to Twitter. <laughs> yeah, no, no, it's much safer, but thank you so much for your time. It's really oh, been an invaluable discussion and one that I know will be really helpful for listeners. Yeah. And we can do something downstream again too, with other topics, Cynthia. I'd love that. Enjoy the holiday. Thank you. You too. Food. All right. Bye-bye. If you love this podcast episode, please leave a rating and review, subscribe and tell a friend. Just as you carefully choose the cut of meat or freshness of produce that you cook at home, you should carefully choose chemical-free cookware that provides a healthy and safe cooking experience. The materials in 360 cookware are safe, sustainable, and of the highest quality. Their cookware is 100% free from any toxic chemicals as the company produces quality stainless steel cookware and bakeware without added chemicals, and all are manufactured in the United States. It's also the leading manufacturer that equips kitchens with cookware and bakeware that are free of all of the toxic chemicals and coatings, including PFAS, Teflon, and ceramic. And the best thing is that when used properly, the product's construction provides nonstick properties in a product that can be passed down through generations. Go to www.360cookware.com and use code CYNTHIA20 for 20% off your first order. Again, that's 360cookware.com and use code CYNTHIA20 for 20% off your first order. We've been using their products over the last several months and have really been pleased with not only the durability, but ease of cleanliness.